Aya choice made him see that he couldn't follow in Jesus' footsteps without walking with the people in their daily aspiration to dignity, life, and liberation. Yet in the face of this difficult challenge, he did not take refuge in an intellectual life flowing quietly along in the purely academic world. This kind of life, although it might occasionally reflect what was happening to the marginalized, would in fact be far from them. That was a quote from Gustavo Gutierrez about Ignacio E. Correa, and this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. Welcome back, friends in Christ. We continue today with part two in a two-part series on Ignacio A. Correa's essay, The Historicity of Christian Salvation. We'll be getting into the relationship between salvation history and profane history, changes to traditional understandings of sin and grace, and some points on the spirituality of liberation. All of it very enlightening and groundbreaking stuff. But before we move into the text, two sort of parish announcements. First, the podcast is moving to a monthly format for the summer. I have, it's kind of great, I, I have a book coming out as well as a special summer assignment. So I'll be a little busy and I just have to reduce the number of episodes at this time in order to continue to provide the kind of quality, uh, well-researched content here. But when I do return to Xavier University in the fall, I'll reassess returning to a weekly or a bi-weekly model. And so I do apologize for the time being for the reduction but we know that life happens. Uh, second, as mentioned on Twitter, which if you haven't already, do follow the Liberation Theology Podcast on Twitter, at LibTheoPodcast. Uh, I'll be including Q&A in episodes beginning in this one. And sometimes, like in this episode, the Q&A will be interspersed, and then sometimes the Q&A will be at the end. So if you do have a question that you'd like the show to address, then send an email to libtheopodcast at gmail.com. And I can't guarantee that I'll have an answer to your question, but if not, I will do some research or consult some friends who do have expertise in that given area. And I think that the Q&A will make the show more dynamic dynamic and communal. Uh, we want to really build a community here, so please do write. It'd be great to be in touch with you. Uh, I'll respond as soon as I can, and I do love to be in communication, so, so do write and take advantage of that. Love to hear from you. So that's that for now. Let's uh, start into the search for Christian historical transcendence, which, though part two of our little mini-series here on this chapter from Aeokorea, is actually part four of his text uh, last time we covered parts one through three. In this final section of the text, Aeokorea returns to two fundamental questions. What's the relationship between profane history and salvation history? And what's the specifically Christian contribution to historical transcendence? And Latin American liberation theologians are not the first to address these questions, uh, certainly not, but uh, there have been two sketches made in more recent times, one by Karl Rahner, Catholic and Jesuit, 
and another by Wolfhart Pannenberg, a Lutheran. And Aya Korea gives 10 points related to these two, but I'll just highlight one from each. Rahner thinks that though salvation and profane history are co-penetrating, they are not the same. And this is because we can't say that everything in profane history is of God, is God saving humanity, because a part of profane history is precisely the opposite. It's what Rahner calls condemnation. It's not right to say that cold-blooded murder, genocide, racism, any other of, of these kind of of ills, serious uh, or less serious, are are saving our God's saving work, uh, and it's also not right to say that profane history corresponds exactly to God's saving work because that would not leave open the possibility of human freedom. Humans, you know, we we're free to choose to collaborate with God to work for salvation or to reject it to our own condemnation, and we'll see in a moment that. Rahner's idea here of this not, you know, exactly the same and, and sin kind of getting in the way of this exact relation between profane and, and sacred history. We'll see that that emerges in Aya Korea's own ideas about grace and sin uh, here in a bit. And Pannenberg, for his part, you know, he offers another helpful point, which Aya Korea summarizes as follows, quote, The self-revelation of God has not occurred discreetly, as in the form of a theophany, but indirectly through the works of God in history, end quote. And we can interpret this insight by Pannenberg, by recognizing the fact that God has not shown God's person in an absolute, once-for-all, undeniable, and extremely clear fashion. Even in Jesus, God's ultimate revelation, divinity is as if hidden in Jesus's humanity. And Jesus did not convince everyone definitively that uh, he was God. People, even his disciples, doubted and continue to do so. The activity of God is just often indirect, messy, uh, caught up in the contingencies of history. So we have to, as St. Paul says, work out our salvation in fear and trembling. It's not as if God shows up at a certain point. Everyone just immediately recognizes God and what God wants us to do, and then it's smooth sailing from there on out. The labor of liberation is tough. It takes time, energy, grit. Pannenberg's insight, it really corresponds well with liberation theology's historicity, materiality, uh, and anthropocentrism. But having surveyed these Rahner and, and Pannenberg, A. Korea wants to remind us of the base from which liberation theology approaches this question of the relationship between sacred and profane history. And that is the experience of the Latin American believer and the poorest and the most oppressed sectors of society who are committed to their political liberation. And this all sounds familiar because it's basically Gustavo Gutierrez's definition of liberation theology, liberation theology being a theological reflection on this commitment to liberation. So in light of this commitment, what are we to say about history? Here is A. Correa's thesis. For the oppressed of Latin America, salvation history and profane history are united in what we can call the, quote, great history of God, end quote. And I would note linguistically, you know, being a Spanish person, that this great 
history of God could be translated as the great story of God, because in Spanish the word historia carries both meanings. And in the Orbis translation, it's the great history of God. And that's probably the better translation, because the Latin American oppressed are interested in reality, in historical, real historical conditions, not in like a story that has little to no material significance. So we can refer to it, this big picture that encompasses both sacred and profane as the great history of God. Anyways, these two histories united in the single history of God are at bottom one, because it's God's mission to, as the scriptures say, quote, bring history to its fullness, end quote, to a fullness in which, quote, God will be all in all, end quote. And we can even think of the Our Father, where we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God has been at work to unite heaven and earth, to unite these different histories, we could say, into one in cooperation with humanity throughout. Because as long as evil, sin, and death have been around since uh, Eve and Adam, since Abel and Cain, God's been at work. Uh, trying to overcome these things. And, and you know, even as another quick aside here, this God at work language that Ignacio Eucaria and many liberation theologians pick up is a very Ignatian, uh, in, in, in terms of St. Ignatius of Loyola, way of speaking. You know, Loyola loved to speak of God at work in all things. So God has been at work everywhere, but not only in uh, Hebrew history and in Christian history, but also in other contexts too. And Aeacharia mentions the Popol Vuh, for example, in which God is at work in creation and natural history and in human relations. So kind of even in these traditions that are outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition, we can see that God is at work in similar ways and that peoples of many different places and times have seen God as active both in nature and in human history. And Aeacharia speaks of Christ, historical and cosmic, uh, the God of humanity, the God of the universe. And here, he's taking a hint from the theologian uh, Teilhard de Chardin, who wrote of the cosmos evolving towards the omega point, which is the edge at the end of time when all things are in communion with each other and with God. And Chardin's theory jives well with liberation theology. Humanity in Christ is progressively spiraling towards total integral liberation, towards the end point which we can conceive of as love, you know, as a community of love. And liberation theology's omega point is often uh, referred to as well as utopia, the place of goodness, the place which is coming into existence but which is not yet. So, the reign of God, kind of following this evolving perspective of Teilhard, is like a mustard seed that is planted on earth, which is growing and unfolding towards fullness, maturity, and towards the common good. And I don't know about you, but I know that for me, when I think of theology and history in this way, it is very freeing and, and very hopeful. It makes me think of myself inspired to be part of this process of growth. And it gives me peace to know that I'm a member of a meaningful universal project that spans time and space. 
The all of God becoming all in all does not exclude politics. And this is an important point. Every sphere of the universe, every sphere of human activity is involved in this unfolding process towards this omega point. We have to overcome the apoliticizing of God. When some some Christians, they want to stay above the fold of politics. And I think that they're failing to see that God has a total claim on humanity. There is no area of life from which God's love should be excluded. Everywhere, God's love should abide. So Christians must be immersed in the world of politics, not with a reactionary politics that reinforces capitalist, racist, and sexist exploitation, but with a revolutionary liberal politics that foregrounds the struggle of the oppressed in our ultimate pursuit of the common good. Air Korea writes, quote, to be committed only to the religious aspect of the kingdom without concern for its essential reference to the world and history would be a clear betrayal of God's history. It would leave the field of history to God's enemies, end quote. Political liberation is an integral part of Christian liberation as a whole. We cannot shun it. Rather, we must, as Christians, Christians shape it. And having laid out this macro conception of history as a whole, as God's great history, Aeacharia pivots from the salvation profane history discussion to one of grace and sin. For many Christians, and in much Christian theology, the fundamental distinction is that between the natural and the supernatural. This framing, uh, perhaps platonic in origin, leads to a problematic ideology. In some circles, it shows up as a fundamentalism that obsesses over the miraculous. In others, it shows up as a withdrawal into contemplation and passivity, awaiting to die and be born into a supernatural realm in the afterlife. In still others, it shows up as an allergy to science. In all these ways, the distinction is counter-revolutionary. It de-emphasizes concrete historical action in favor of superstitious spiritual phantasms. It takes people out of reality into the imaginary. Aeacharia, in a characteristically Christian maneuver, claims that the fundamental distinction is not between natural and supernatural, but between grace and sin. Grace being life, life with God, life in abundance, and sin being the negation of life and of the God of life. And this equation of grace with life and sin with death is not only liberating by consequence, but also scripturally sound in its rationale. And let me just cite briefly here three examples. First, we can think of original sin in Genesis. God says to Adam, Quote, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. End quote. Then we can see in Paul's famous line from Romans, quote, the wages of sin is death. End quote. And finally, we can think of St. John's classic text on which uh, we Catholics call mortal sin, quote, there is sin which is mortal, end quote. And so here from the beginning in Genesis, the first pages of the Bible through to the New Testament in both Paul and John, we see this relationship between sin and death. And there's so many more examples, but we see that sin and death are closely related in the Bible. They're so closely related that we could even pose a working definition of sin as that which leads to death. 
And if we define sin as such, which I think we should, then it is easy to see why liberation theologians are so insistent on the substance of the term social sin. Though often debated, social sin is a valid, material, and real phenomenon in that though situations, structures, and systems are not sin, in the sense of other definitions of sin that foreground a personal act of the will, they are certainly sin in this biblical and more robust sense of sin. They lead to people's death, to the beating down of their spirits and bodies. The social sin subverts the activity of God, the God who breathes life into us. Social sin takes this life away, but God wants the fullness of life for the creatures that God made in God's image and likeness. And in Jesus, we can take this analysis further. Sin not only goes against God's plan of life in Jesus, but also sin takes away the life of God's very self. The crucifixion is sin, and this sin is an expression of social sin. The cross is a crossroads of sinful structures, of social sins. In the cross, we see poverty, we see imperialism, we see religious ideological oppression. We saw, see all of these systems converging on the cross. And these sinful structures persist into the present. We still have with us poverty, imperialism, and religious ideological oppression, as we know. And that leads Ea Korea to one of his most powerful lines. Quote, The death of the poor is the death of God. The ongoing crucifixion of the Son of God. Sin is the negation of God. End quote. Again, the death of the poor is the death of God, the ongoing crucifixion of the Son of God. Sin is the negation of God. So now let us move to our first question from a listener, and the first one coming from Barry Fitzpatrick, and he writes in an email, Are there models of liberation theology in practice applied to first world situations such as ours in the United States, where segments of the population remain condemned to living in oppressive conditions generation after generation? If there are, what are they, and are they successful? I think of Father Greg Boyle and Homeboy Industries in L.A., but I'm not sure if that fits with the praxis you and Ea Korea and others talk about. If not, are there ways to create them and move to answer ministerial needs that exist in this first world nation of ours? So thank you, Barry, for that first question that this show will address and for your thoughtfulness and for your friendship. I want to address this question in three parts. First, on Homeboy Industries. Second, on other organizations like Homeboy Industries that we can find in the United States. And then finish with some commentary on the systems level. So, some people may not be familiar with Homeboy Industries. Homeboy Industries is a ministry of the Society of Jesus founded by Greg Boyle. I think it's been going for about 
30 years now, uh, if I recall correctly, and it is a rehabilitation program for former gang members, offering them job training and work experience. And they, so they have a number of kind of branches. There's a clothing line, there is a bakery, there is a recycling company. And so this organization offers place for people who want to leave gangs, a place to work, gives them access to resources to satisfy their housing and other needs. Needs uh, during the time when they are kind of in in recovery and adapting away from that gang life and becoming, as the website puts it, contributing members of society. I think that this is great work, and it is perhaps one of the most innovative works of the Society of Jesus in the United States. Very cool and transformative work, and I think anyone who may be familiar with the work of Greg, who has worked with him or heard him speak uh, in any capacity or seen the transformative power of this kind of work would, would accept that it is a very important thing that is going on there that we would want to support. And I think that like Homeboy Industries, to move on to the second point, there are many organizations within the United States which are doing work along those lines, which are addressing the concrete needs of people uh, to move away from uh, harmful communities and structures into more healthy and human ways of being. And I especially want to point out that I have in recent months been tangentially uh, working with a Catholic social action, this kind of incipient group that is being formed in the model of Catholic action of old, an organization of lay people organizing on issues of interest to Catholic social teaching. And they have developed a Catholic advocacy map. So if, if one goes to Google and then types in Catholic social action and Catholic advocacy map that will come up and it lists a number of organizations doing great work on a number of topics in the United States in kind of a web-like format, which is very intriguing. And so take a look at that. Then I want to just offer some concluding remarks on this question, which pertain to maybe some deeper concerns. So liberation theology seeks to address the root causes of oppression. It's taking revolutionary action to move from oppression to liberation. And Gustavo Gutierrez, early on in A Theology of Liberation, identifies the problem as this developmentalism that is dependent on dependency, you know, internationally. So within the United States, I think that we can see sometimes that the same model is applied domestically, right? It's, it's a reform model, a developmental model, kind of an investment model in communities. And I think that under capitalism, it almost has to to be that way, right? Because what is the alternative to capitalism, to functioning in this way of using businesses and profits in order to empower people at that level? But I think as long as that our capitalist mode of production remains, we're going to continue to see the reproduction of many of these problems that manifest themselves in poverty, in gang life, in drug use, in, in situations of that nature. What we want to do is, is get at the root, and getting at the root is essentially going to mean the transforming of the capitalist mode of production into uh, an anti-capitalist and, and, and socialist mode of production. And this is where Gustavo Gutierrez is very clear in A Theology of Liberation that the project of liberation is tied up with a socialist uh, transformation. And so what, what should our praxis look like? Well, me as, you know, as a Jesuit, as a religious, you know, we're not 
directly involved with political uh, organizations, with partisan politics, and uh, Vatican II kind of has the laity taking the helm of that project. But I think that at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is going to get at the root of these problems in the United States. And in my analysis of this issue, there is that economic base. And as long as that economic base question is not addressed, then we're going to see many of these same issues occurring, you know, where workers are producing the value of companies and this value is being absorbed by the capitalist, by the owner. And so the worker is in, in a tough position because the worker is working in order to live and survive. And then to certain degrees, there's an amount of advancement that is allowed if you play the game. But at the end of the day, who owns, who controls, who is dominating the economic and political structures of our country? It's the, the owning class, the wealthy classes who are able to make these investments and really control the system in order to maybe offer some reforms along the way, but ultimately preserve the power that they have. So ultimately, for the time being, I think that taking some cues from Luis Althusser, I think we need to do a number of things. One is we need to challenge that economic base of the capitalist mode of production. And one way of doing that is through the organization of workers and also through different ways of doing business, which are more egalitarian and democratic under the cooperative form where the business is owned by the workers and people take turns and democratically elect you know, how their business is going to be run together. So I think those things will address the economic uh, question to some degree. We also then need to think about the political question, because there may be gains that are taking place at some local levels in union organizing, and then also some businesses which choose to accept business practices which are more amenable to Catholic social teaching. Then we have the political question. And the political question, again, being a Jesuit and a religious, you know, it's not my role to endorse any political party. But the question becomes, which political party is going to best help us to overcome the capitalist mode of production? And then what we really all should be doing is chipping away at the ideological state apparatuses. And this is an area in which, you know, I myself feel a call in recent times in particular to the scholastic apparatus, which is kind of how our schools function. And so I have an upcoming article uh, in a book which is going to be on uh, decolonial pedagogy, which explains practices that professors can use in the classroom in order to challenge basically patterns of behavior that allow for the reproduction of, of capital. And so those are my initial answers to the question, Barry. I hope that we can continue the dialogue, and I thank you for getting us started off. The next section of Ea Correa's text is entitled Creation, the Presence of the Trinitarian Life. And it may seem strange that he turns to creation given that he just spelled out his resistance to the natural-supernatural divide, but actually he thinks that if we think some more about how creation is understood, we will see how this divide breaks down and how the grace-sin distinction takes precedence. And here's where he turns to his philosophical mentor Javier Zubiri. 
Zubiri speaks of creation as, quote, the grafting ad extra of the Trinitarian life itself, a freely desired grafting, end quote. Now, to, to be honest, I am confused about why the Orbis translation uses the word grafting. In the Spanish original, the word is plasmación, which is more frequently translated into English as materialization, embodiment, visualization, or rendering. But regardless of how we render it, no pun intended, the meaning is that, quote, each created thing, according to its nature, is a limited way of being God, end quote. And humanity in particular is especially a little God, because the nature of humanity is closer to the nature of God in the personal dimension. Further, the human way of being is more flexible, more open than that of other species. We have a unique position in creation in that we can more actively grow in divine life and love. We also have a unique position in creation in that we can actively choose to not grow in divine life. That is, we can sin and explicitly negate life in a way that is unnecessary according to our nature, namely killing each other. In short, we are freer because of the high development of our will and intellect, features of our existence that can be used for good or for evil, for life or for death. And Aeokaria makes a typically Jesuit Ignatian move in the selection of a passage from one of Monsignor Romero's pastoral letters. She talks about the idolatry of absolutizing wealth, private property, national security, in particular organizations. And why this condemnation of idolatry? Why is it Ignatian? Well, it harkens back to the Jesuit founder, St. Ignatius of Loyola's first principle and foundation near the start of the spiritual exercises. Let me read an adaptation of it by David Fleming. It's well worth it. A truly an amazing philosophy of life, uh, we could say. Quote, the goal of our life is to live with God forever. God who loves us gave us life. Our own response of love allows God's life to flow into us without limit. All the things in this world are gifts from God, presented to us so that we can know God more easily and make a return of love more readily. As a result, we appreciate and use all these gifts of God, insofar as they help us to develop as loving persons. But if any of these gifts become the center of our lives, they displace God and so hinder our growth toward our goal. In everyday life, then, we must hold ourselves in balance before all of these created gifts insofar as we have a choice and are not bound by some obligation. We should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one. For everything has the potential of calling forth in us a deeper response to our life in God. Our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and I choose what better leads to God's deepening his life in me. End quote. The first principle and foundation dovetails well with Aeokaria's idea of creation and Romero's comments on idolatry. Though all created things are limited little renderings of the divine Trinitarian life, and as such, they are worthy of our esteem, they are limited, and as such, they should not be absolutized. God is the only absolute. When we make of created things an absolute, such as the accumulation of property, then we have lost the point. We have fallen into idolatry. The goal is to move with creation to the omega point, what the Fleming translation calls, quote, our life with God forever, end quote. When we do so, we are in grace. 
Sin, on the other hand, is the absolutizing of a limit. And this absolutizing always entails a materialism, in the negative sense, an obsession with private material gain at the expense of the collective of God, nature, and humanity together. There's so much to say here, but let's move on for now. And if you are interested in this topic on nature and this idolatry and history, then I would recommend really digging into Zubiri. And a good, though admittedly heady, place to start, and where you can find the origin of many of Eakuria's ideas in this essay is Zubiri's book, Nature, History, God. And, you know, Zubiri, <laughs> he's tough, and a lot of his writing really does presume a knowledge of almost the entire philosophical tradition that comes before him. So I would say another popular rendering that's been helpful for, for me myself of Zubiri's ideas can be found in Spanish. Unfortunately, I don't know if it exists in English, but it's in the popular philosophy textbook by Antonio González. Uh, it's called Introducción a la Práctica de la Filosofía. Anyways, next Eakaria enters into a discussion of unjust poverty, and it's a good review of many of the ideas we saw in Gutierrez's chapter on the preferential option for the poor, so I'll move through it uh, rather quickly. The bridge with the previous section on creation is that unjust poverty is the result of the institutionalizing and systematizing of the idolatrous absolutizing about which Romero spoke. This systematizing creates structures that go beyond isolated actions of greed. Eucharia writes of, quote, the sin of the world, a sin that is different from individual sins, End quote. This sin, the sin of the world, is that which Jesus comes to take away. St. John the Baptist points to Jesus early in the Gospel of John and says, quote, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, end quote. A line that we Catholics ourselves proclaim at Mass. We see God in the Eucharist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Poverty and injustice, insofar as they lead to death, slowly or quickly, are negations of God's will, and Jesus wants to get rid of them. And that's the project that Jesus started. That's the project that we Christians continue. It's the transformation of oppression into liberation. Eucharia powerfully writes that the revelation of God in Christ is a, quote, crushing down that leads to exaltation, the death on the cross that leads to resurrection, the suffering that leads to glory, the least of these who are the greatest in the kingdom, the poor who are promised blessings, end quote. To achieve this goal, to make these blessings a reality, to turn the last into the first, the oppressed Christians of Latin America have made, quote, a political commitment with revolutionary sectors, end quote. And this association does not mean that Christians should accept Marxism wholesale. For the Christian, Marxism is always subordinate to liberation theology. And Christian, the Christian conception of poverty, quote, outgrows the Marxist definition of the proletariat from both above and below, end quote. And here we can refer back to Medellin's and Gutierrez's threefold understanding of poverty, in which the category of real poverty extends beyond the working class to other oppressed groups, something to which more recent iterations of Marxism are increasingly open. For instance, some proletarian feminists think that resistance to patriarchy and resistance to capitalism ought to be carried out simultaneously, and the resolution of the capitalist problem will not automatically resolve the patriarchal problem. Problem. Christians then can be a leaven 
amidst revolutionary movements, the free, non-reactionary Christian can help revolutionary movements avoid their own dogmatization. And on this matter, I'd recommend the Magnificast's recent episode with Margaret Randall, who wrote a book called Christians in the Nicaraguan Revolution, a participation that she, even as a non-believer, sees as a positive contribution. A last note on this section, Eucharia points out that we need to be careful to distinguish the preferential option for the poor from ulterior political options. The Catholic Church at Vatican II made it clear that the church qua hierarchical institution does not endorse particular political parties, even though the church does endorse as a working guideline the preferential option for the poor. It is up to people in economic, social, and political science and its practice to develop the best way to incarnate the preferential option, and in particular, it is for the lay faithful, not priests or religious, to carry out the work of partisan politics informed by the loving teachings of Jesus Christ and the Church. And this point provides a fruitful transition to our second question from a listener in some ways similar to the first question. The second question comes from Matthew Cook in an email. My question is about how the politics of liberation theology works. I'm a social worker and have been thinking about Dorothy Day's condemnation of the servile state, the social work state, because she saw that it is the encroachment of the work of the church, that when government took over, it would increase the indifference of people toward their neighbors and Christians would refer the homeless to government agencies as opposed to taking them in. So, does liberation theology advocate that the state look after the poor and to what capacity? And thank you, Matthew, for that question. I don't think that there is a unified response to this question. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that, kind of as I mentioned in the previous section, the details of the nature of the economic, social, and political solution is not necessarily going to be achieved from theology, but rather through economic, social, and political science. And so I think that that's kind of my first response. And though I think that liberation theologians do take different positions on this question personally, kind of according to their particular economic, social, political philosophies. I think there are some people like Dorothy Day who are more in a transition of kind of Christian anarchy who would be a little wary of government involvement in these questions, like the question of poverty or homelessness. There are other folks who would be much more eager to see a governmental solution to this problem. And in fact, that's not necessarily even a tendency within liberation theology, but also a tendency within Catholic social teaching itself. Because I, I want to just read a quote here from Pasham in, in, in Terrace, which is a 1963 encyclical letter from Pope John XXIII. It, it forms part of the uh, repertoire of Catholic social teaching. And he says there in paragraph 64, quote, the public administration must therefore give considerable care and thought to the question of social as well as economic progress and to the development of essential services in keeping with the expansion of the productive system. Such services include road building, transportation, communications, drinking water, housing, medical care, ample facilities for the practice of religion, and aids to recreation, end quote. So here, and in other places too, the Catholic uh, social teaching tradition makes it seem like there are some problems that, though they are addressed in 
the way of subsidiarity that is they're addressed at the local communal level, and we want to have an interpersonal response to these problems. Some of these problems are so big and so structural that it's best for the government to intervene and provide the development, as the document says, of these essential services. So some liberation theologians, I think, would like to see, again, a transformation away from the capitalist mode of production and would see then that some of these issues would flow out of a different situation if there were to be a revolutionary environment in a country where then the government would kind of provide the government being an institution of democracy of the people, right? And I think that this is kind of one of the, the concerns is that sometimes in, in anarchical language, the government is used kind of in a derogatory sense. And even that might tap into some of our U.S. libertarian tendencies as well. But if the government is understood appropriately as being a mechanism of the masses, as the, the masses, the poor, the oppressed people advocating for their needs, and that that solution is is dealt with at a communal level in a democratic way, then could the people as a whole address some of these these problems on the level of the entire society? And I think that the the answer is yes, and that there are examples in history and even examples presently of countries that are doing just that. However, I think until that time comes, because right now we don't have universal health care, we don't have universal housing, we don't have universal access to good food, and even in some places in the United States, access to clean drinking, drinking water, let alone, I mean, transportation. Some cities have very poor public transit systems and very poor roads and bridges, as we know. Until that time comes, you know, we do have to deal with the situation at hand. And the situation is at hand is that many people are suffering from these issues. And so, as I addressed in the previous question, organizations like those outlined by Catholic Social Action and organizations like Homeboy Industries are doing some incredible work on the local level. But taking care of individual homeless people is absolutely necessary. But I think at the same time as we're taking care of these uh, individual concerns uh, of people and welcoming them in and showing hospitality and doing the incredible work that many uh, Catholic work worker houses, for example, are doing at the same time as many Catholic house ho worker houses are doing anyways, is advocating for addressing the structural issues that are going to get at the root of why homelessness exists, why poverty exists, why some forms of disease exist in the first place. Though we cannot say precisely what the social dimension of Christian historical transcendence will look like, we can say what it does not look like, and we can also chart some general directions of what it should be. First, it is not a theocratic power, as with Moses, Judges, Kings, and the Maccabees. Though God wants a historic integral salvation, that does not necessarily mean that it will come from concentrated political power that claims divine inspiration. Second, it is not a separation from this world. Yes, there is transcendence, but this transcendence is not a historical transcendence, and history is not made by waiting. In the separation option, there is too much emphasis on the not yet and not enough on the already in terms of the typical already, not yet formulation of the reign of God. It is, however, making the saving power of God present in history in the way that Jesus did. 
And what was Jesus's power like? It's that of the suffering servant. It's a power that is not a power as we typically understand power at all. It's a bold and transformative humility. It's a suffering for the sake of liberation. When we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus did not look for theocratic power. As mentioned in the previous episode, Jesus was neither a King David nor a Judas Maccabeus. That said, he didn't either retreat from the social and historical. We see in Jesus the unity of God's cause with the human cause, or better put, with the cause of the poor. In Jesus, we see a rupture with what the world understands as the glory of God. The gospel is not the greatness of nature, nor is it human wisdom, miracles, religious law, riches, or power. Jesus goes with what the powerful actually despise. The Christian faith is not the wisdom of the world. It's the power of the crucified, not the theocratic miracle. It's grace and love, not the religious law. It's poverty and service, not riches and power. And the proof of this way of proceeding of Jesus is his persecution. Though he could have miraculously called down angels from heaven to smash his persecutors, he chose a more historical and material path that entailed his own death. And as Christians committed to the liberation of the oppressed, we must renew our minds to think of power in this way, not as the power of the rich and powerful, not as some spiritual power removed from historical reality, but as the power in that of the way of Jesus, the power of one who came to serve, not to be served, the power of a poor worker who organized with the oppressed for a reign that belongs to them. Ea Korea finishes this exemplary essay with some notes on the spirituality of liberation. He frames spirituality as, quote, personal encounter with a Christian historical transcendence, end quote, that we've been discussing. To notice this encounter, we have to be, as St. Ignatius of Loyola and Gustavo Gutierrez have pointed out, contemplatives in action. Action meaning personally carrying out the work of the liberation of the oppressed, contemplation meaning finding God subjectively in this objective work that we're doing. It's knowing what God is doing in history. Just as we can discern how God is showing up in our personal lives and transforming us, we can discern how God is showing up in history and transforming society. We might even apply the Ignatian tool of the examine to society at large. Practitioners of Ignatian spirituality pray the examine by looking for God moments in their day. And practitioners of a social Ignatian spirituality can pray an examine that looks for God moments in the revolutionary struggle for freedom and justice. Where is God at work in people and social movements? How can we work with God? And this work means addressing sin. Though we often speak of the forgiveness of sin in Christianity, the ministry of Jesus does not stop there. Jesus wants sin not only to be forgiven, but also removed. But what's our diagnosis of the disease of sin in the body politic, and how might that dictate what we are to do to remove it? Ea Correa, without much elaboration, claims that that's where at times liberation theology turns to Marxist social analysis and the Marxist praxis. Marx, in a work like Capital, for instance, gives a thorough diagnosis of the contradictions of capitalism, and there and elsewhere he sketches the future of the overcoming of the capitalist mode of production. Liberation theology, without bowing to Marxism, can freely draw from what it finds accurate and helpful in this analysis, and it can do so not only with Marx, but also with other socioeconomic and political analysts. Finally, Ea Korea wishes to center the spirituality of the oppressed as they experience it. 
He writes, quote, Better and deeper is the contemplation of those to whom God has wished to reveal himself. La gente sencilla, simple folk. End quote. Indeed, what is the spirituality of liberation theology if not the relationship that the committed oppressed have with God? The Spirit continues to anoint prophets, like the poor Jesus, to bring good news to their fellow poor. And this liberating spirit is the backbone of the spirituality of liberation. In our third and final question today, coming from Jeremy Lee, how does liberation theology address the oppressor in terms of what specific actions are taken to get them to repent from their oppressive ways when they resist what actions should be taken to disrupt their oppression? So thank you, Jeremy, for this awesome question, and I want to address it in four parts. The first part would be that if we take seriously Gustavo Gutierrez's and Ignacio Eucaria's as presented in this episode, their definition of liberation theology, liberation theology is reflection on the committed praxis of the oppressed for their liberation. And so in that way, liberation theology does not quote-unquote, address the oppressor at all, but rather it's addressing the commitment of oppressed peoples and their allies for liberation. The allies meaning, like we were talking about a few weeks ago, there's poverty of solidarity, and poverty of solidarity means a commitment on the part of those who are in the position of the oppressor, in the position of privilege, kind of a, a using that privilege in order to work with the oppressed for their liberation. So I think that's, in a way, you know, moves into our second point, which is that liberation theology offers an invitation to the oppressor saying, do that, be that person who is in solidarity with us and working alongside us as the poor in search of our own liberation. And so I think we can see this, for example, you know, pretty clearly in someone like Ernesto Cardenal, who is someone who came from, you know, a rich conservative Catholic background who progressively, kind of through a series of political moves, you know, through a series of theological moves, ended up being someone who put the weight of his person, his education, everything in solidarity, in community with oppressed peoples in Nicaragua. So I think there's always that opportunity, that kind of extension of an invitation. And I would say, just kind of in general, I think that invitation is oftentimes a great first step in any kind of process of transformation. So I think of like students at Xavier sometimes when they're thinking of, you know, I want people to come to my group. I want people to organize, you know, and I think the, the first question is just like, are we inviting people? <laughs> so are like, first, are we inviting our friends? Like, are we also just inviting people to, to join our movement? So I think that that's, that's the question. And then it becomes also a question of having invited people, then do we provide a space for education so that people can, because that it's, it's a long and difficult process, the process to be someone who, who truly shares a commitment with uh, the oppressed people. And I think it's a process that that's a lifelong process for, for someone who wishes to be in a place of solidarity. Solidarity. Then I want to move to points three and four. I think someone like Fanon, Algerian revolutionary, would say that really the, the law of power only responds to the law of power. And so there has to be pressure that is placed on the oppressor in order to get the oppressor to change the oppressor's ways. So 
I think of something like a strike <laughs> where it's not engaging in, in maybe a direct act of what we would consider to be violence. So it's not killing or maiming of the oppressor or you know a jailing of the oppressor. But what it is, is it's, it's putting kind of a serious pressure on the oppressor to change. And oftentimes, you know, it doesn't work, but sometimes it does work. And, and we see significant changes, I think, of, of some universities in recent times that through a lot of political activity and organization and placing pressure and doing news interviews, and, and you know, they're able to put enough pressure on an institution to get it to change and increase salaries, increase benefits, that kind of thing. So I think that, that that's the case. Now, I think there are some cases, and as I've stated before, I think that there are some cases where all means have been tried that are peaceful, if we want to think of it in that way. And if there is a point where people are suffering so much and are facing so much death that the best thing to do and the only thing to do in order to survive is to revolt you know, in a violent struggle, I think that as someone who takes very seriously, to some degree, the tradition and Catholic social teaching of just war, I think that you know some of the liberation theologians move in that direction and say there are some cases in history where oppressed people are facing oppression that is of a nature that is leading to so much death and, and destruction, and that they're in a tactical position where they're able to allow for a revolutionary movement to occur that engages in violence, that at the end of the day, you know, more good and more life would be won by overcoming through a violent revolution that, you know, that's the way to go. And, and I think that that's an acceptable way of proceeding from not only Catholic morality, but also uh, praxis uh, and in history. And we've seen that that is successful in some ways. So I think of, you know, something like the Haitian Revolution, which, you know, this is huge. This is uh, a Fr French colonial power, which is oppressing people uh, in Haiti, economically, politically, just on a, on a on a level that is extremely serious and, and called for a, a revolution of violence that would allow people to be emancipated from these conditions of, of social sin that were very clearly leading to enslavement and death. And so there is a place for that. But there's only a place for that under certain conditions. And I, I don't think that those conditions are the present conditions in the United States. And so I think that it's more so that option of inviting and then also the option of engaging, you know, if, if invitations aren't working, then we have to put on more pressure in the form of uh, peaceful and, and, and civil disobedience. And then kind of only when that's been tried and the situation is very serious, then we need to move beyond political and economic and, and into the military. So thank you for that question, Jeremy. And uh, that will wrap up our Q&A, our first few Q&As here in the podcast. And thank all who contributed and then all also encourage folks to continue to submit questions and to the extent possible, I will do my best to answer. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. We'll continue next time with another revolutionary reading, Liberty and Liberation by Juan Luis Segundo. And I have to admit that this chapter by Segundo in Mysterium Liberationis is probably the one that has most influenced my journey with liberation theology. It's, it's my favorite. So I really do look forward to exploring it with y'all next time. In it, Segundo makes the case that liberation and salvation have the same basic meaning in the Bible, which is really great stuff. For now, let's end with 
a very powerful prayer taken from, from Pope Francis's visit to a work site in Madagascar in 2019. Let's pray together in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Father, creator of heaven and earth, we thank you for gathering us as brothers and sisters in this place. We pray to you for workers everywhere. We pray for those who work with their hands and with immense physical effort, soothe their wearied frames, that they may tenderly caress their children and join in their games. Grant them unfailing spiritual strength and physical health, lest they succumb beneath the burden of their labor. Grant that the fruits of their work may ensure a dignified life to their families. May they come home at night to warmth, comfort, and encouragement, and together under your gaze find true joy. May our families know that the joy of earning our daily bread becomes perfect when that bread is shared. May our children not be forced to work, but receive schooling and continue their studies, and may their teachers devote themselves fully to their task without needing other work to make a decent living. God of justice, touch the hearts of owners and managers. May they make every effort to ensure that workers receive a just wage and enjoy conditions respectful of their human dignity. Father, in your mercy, take pity on those who lack work. May unemployment, the cause of such great misery, disappear from our societies. May all know the joy and dignity of earning their daily bread and bringing it home to support their loved ones. Father, create among workers a spirit of authentic solidarity. May they learn to be attentive to one another, to encourage one another, to support those in difficulty, and to lift up those who have fallen. Let their hearts not yield to hatred, resentment, or bitterness in the face of injustice. May they keep alive their hope for a better world and work to that end. Together, may they constructively defend their rights, grant that their voices and demands may be heard. God, our Father, you have made St. Joseph, foster father of Jesus, and courageous spouse of the Virgin Mary, protector of workers throughout the world. To him I entrust all those who labor here in Madagascar and everywhere, especially those experiencing uncertainty and hardship. May he keep them in the love of your Son and sustain them in their livelihood and in their hope. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.